guys remember your history in uh, 1620. Do you kids know what happened in 1620? Anybody remember? I wouldn't have either. 1620, the pilgrims left England for the New World. And primarily for religious reasons, a good number of them anyway, um, so that they could worship God uh, as they believed they should. They took a couple of months to sail across the Atlantic in the Mayflower, and before they disembarked into the New World, left the Old World behind, before they planted foot on the New World, they drew up what's called the Mayflower Compact. The truth is, there was a little bit of dissent on board the ship, and so the compact was actually drawn up to help make sure when they started new life in the new world that they were on a, a firm foundation to do so. And they were making sure everybody basically was on the same page as they started new life in the new world. Let me read to you the Mayflower Compact. It's short, and you'll notice the King James English because it was King James that they had sailed under. But this is what they said. In the name of God, amen. We whose names are underwritten the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord, King James, by the grace of God, of England, France, and Ireland, King, Defender of the Faith, etc., having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our King and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid and by virtue hereof to enact constitute and frame such just and equal laws ordinances acts constitutions and offices from time to time as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. In witness whereof, we have hereunto subscribed our names at Cape Cod, the 11th of November, in the reign of our sovereign Lord, King James of England, France, and Ireland, the 18th, and of Scotland, the 54th, Anno Domini, or in the year of our Lord, 1620. So you've got pilgrims, those that we call the pilgrims, these dissenters, these people who leave the old world behind, get on a ship, endure the journeys, couple months long, 66 days I think it was, across the Atlantic to land in a new world. And before they start this new life in the new world, they come to this, basically this accord on at least the foundation of their life in the new world. And they did it to avoid problems, dissensions had already started, and make sure they were all on the same page. I thought it was also interesting that they said their trip was for the glory of God, the advancement of the Christian faith, and the honor of their king and country. These are pretty high-minded ideals in this Mayflower, Mayflower Compact as they start their new life in the new world. The passage we're in this morning... <coughs> Sorry, I'm very phlegmy this morning... <coughs> Springs hard on my <coughs> allergy. Sorry, I'll probably cough through the rest of this. But <coughs> Genesis eight, eighteen through nine, seven this morning. 
the Mayflower, the voyage of the pilgrims on the Mayflower, and the enactment of this first of civil governments in the New World. Remember, the Mayflower Compact is the first, if you will, formal, pretty informal, but formal government in, the, in what becomes the United States. Sounds a little similar to Noah's story in Genesis 8, 18 through 9, 7. Of course, similar story in the sense that you got a family who boards a ship, they leave an old world behind, they come through tumultuous waters, land in what is essentially a new world, and the order of things in the new world is going to be a little different. Some things will be the same, but other things will be different. And we'll see in the story of Noah here this morning, the first civil government enacted in the world, uh, not just the new world of Noah, but in the world in general, under God's ordering as well, by a guy who to the glory of God had built a boat and sailed, as it were, to a new earth. Genesis 8, 18 through 9, 7. You remember we've already seen Noah built the ark, got the animals and family on board. They've made it through the flood. They landed in the mountains of Ararat. They waited until God said it's time to get off, and that's where we pick up this morning. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. By the way, if you remember, they took seven pairs of clean animals so that in making these offerings they weren't endangering the promulgation of these species in the future. There were more of these than there were the other animals. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Chapter 9, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your life blood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Did you notice the very first thing that Noah does when he gets off the boat? The very first order of business in the new world is worship. So there in verse 20, Noah built an altar and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Uh, It's hard to put yourself in Noah's shoes or in his mind or his family's minds, but remember the world they left, it was full of people and of life. And then they get on the ark 
And, you know, after a year and 10 days, they get off and the world would have been entirely different. And they step out. They know they are the only humans alive on the planet. They are like Adam and Eve again, but kind of from a scarier perspective. No one's left that was there before. All the animals are gone too. So I think it was with a very profound sense of thankfulness and gratitude that when Noah gets out of the ark, he wants to thank God that they're alive. So I think that offering, that worship Noah offers the animals on the altar immediately, I think is in large part motivated by this incredible sense of thanksgiving that we're alive that I'm alive, that my family's alive, that the animals are alive, that we can start over. Also, though, I suspect part of it was this too, uh, maybe less so for us. You know, when we give today, um, sometimes we may or may not, but typically, especially in Old Testament times, when you offered a sacrifice, some sacrifices especially, it was done with the thought that you were offering to God a part of what you had control over, as an indication that God owned everything you had. So, for instance, the first fruits offering, when Israel put the scythe into the harvest, they took those first bits of the harvest and they presented it to God in the temple as an offering that everything they owned and had was God's. They, they indicated that by giving Him the first part. And you see this theme throughout, especially the Old Testament, but into the New as well. So I suspect be, besides Thanksgiving, I think part of what Noah was saying was this, The old world had rejected God. When Noah starts in the new world and he worships, he's offering to God sacrifice as a reminder to himself and as a declaration to God that God owns it all, that they are gods, that the animals are God, that their lives are God. So I think this act of worship, it both is thanksgiving to God that they're alive, but it's also a reminder and a declaration to God that Noah's saying, this world is yours, we're yours, the animals are yours. And when we start a new life in a new world, we're declaring to you that we're not our own. We belong to you. Thanks for saving us, and we belong to you, this new life in this new world. Verse 21 gives God's response. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma And then he made this declaration about he would never again flood the earth. He would never again destroy the earth as he had in this flood. Now, when it says the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, this does not mean God likes steak well done. He's not a fan of hamburgers. It has nothing to do with the smell as a smell. God's a spiritual being. He doesn't smell things the way we do. So it doesn't have to do with that. I think it has more to do with this. When Noah offers up those sacrifices. Life is, in a, in a sense, on planet Earth, back the way it's meant to be. Man is subject to God. God's in His world. God's in the world. Things are as they are meant to be. And the smoke from that sacrifice, and this, this imagery is used later throughout the Old Testament again, it's a reminder to God that things are as they are meant to be. It may also be a reminder that The offering may suggest that Noah, as Abel had, you remember back in Genesis 3 or 4, had offered sacrifices of faith, perhaps with the understanding that their own sinful condition would need to be covered by someone or something else. And that this was a declaration of faith in God to cover their sins. So when God smells the aroma of this sacrifice, and it's pleasing to him. 
It doesn't mean that he's after the food. It doesn't mean that he takes pleasure in the animal carcasses on the altar so much as it is. Earth and life and Noah and God's relationship with man on the earth is the way at this point that God meant it to be. God is pleased with that and makes this declaration. The earth will never again be flooded as it had in Noah's day. Verse 21, I want to just mention very briefly. The text says, God... Uh, said to himself. We might say God thought, God said to himself. The question immediately arises, how did Noah know what God said to himself? And I only bring this up if it's a question mark for you now or later. Uh, This could happen a couple ways. God talked to Noah, right? He talked to him before the flood. He talked to him in the flood, after the flood. God could have told Noah, when you made that sacrifice, this is what I said to myself. Noah could have passed that on. Or when Moses writes the law, the first five books of the Bible, he's with God on Mount Sinai, God could have told Moses then what he thought during this flood narrative as well. We don't know. But there's no problem with God thinking something and that being recorded in the Scriptures. God communicates to man over time, and he did over this as well. Well, back to this theme about things changing or remaining the same. Uh, you know, for the pilgrim, some things the same, some things different. Well, that's true for Noah as well. One thing that was true after the flood, same as before, was this. In verse 21, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. This is interesting. Uh, after the flood, God says man is inherently no different than he was before the flood. God's basically saying Noah and Noah's sons and the wives, and the children that they will have, they'll be no different than the people before the flood. This is almost disappointing at one level. Because remember, God wiped out mankind before the flood. But the ones who came through, they're just like the people that were wiped out. Man's no different. So God says on one hand, Noah and his descendants, like those that were wiped out in the flood, Because they're human and they share the sinful nature from Adam, the intent of their hearts is evil from their youth, the same as before. Man's no different after the flood than he was before the flood. God had no illusion that when he started over, the people who came out of the ark would somehow qualitatively be different from the people who went into the ark. Now, Noah was in relationship with God. I don't mean to say that he wasn't. But God says... You and the people, your descendants, will be no different than the people that existed and lived and were alienated from me before the flood. Some things are the same, and one is this, that mankind is the same qualitatively after the flood that he was before. It kind of raises the question, if that's the case, why did God wipe the earth clean in the flood? If man after the flood is the same as man before the flood, what value did the flood have? I think it's at least this. Before the flood, with no restraints on sin, the sinful condition of man uh, flowered, if you will, full bloom in a relatively short period of time. Uh, Man's evil flowered full bloom with no restraints, essentially, in a relatively brief period of time. When God wipes the slate clean and starts over... In the new world, there will be some different aspects that will slow or will retard the advancement of man's evil over time. 
and there are at least these two, there may be other factors as well, but at least this, God institutes the first or the earliest form of government here in the passage we're in this morning. We'll talk about this in a minute. And then later in a passage we'll see, not this morning, but in Genesis 11, when God confuses the language of man at the Tower of Babel, he does so to slow the progress of evil. So it's as if God takes the apples that are humanity and he wraps them up so that when one rots, it can't necessarily cause rotting to happen in the one next to it. The confusion of language at Babel was to slow the advance of man's evil. And so is the institution of civil government. To this government thing, this does not sound like much of government, but when it says, when it brings up the uh, concept of capital punishment, Whoever sheds man's blood, Genesis 9, 6, by by man his blood shall be shed. The reason this is considered to be the first form of government is this. For a murderer to be executed meant that the larger community had to gather together to physically take him and then physically execute him. Does this make sense? That is, mankind had to act as a body politic Just like the the pilgrims said, they had to create a group. They had to act in sync with each other to arrest the murderer and to execute him. In other words, an individual couldn't go do that necessarily. So it required the group collectively to come together to bring about justice in in the case of murder. So that's why this is considered the earliest form of government. The basic reason for government to exist is to protect and to preserve life. If it doesn't do, do that, it's not doing its most basic function. This first form of government, God institutes, man doesn't institute, this is from God, and he says the, the very foundation of government is to preserve life. So when you read the Declaration of Independence, uh, those guys got a few things right, and by that I mean they got this concept, this biblical concept, they got it right. So when the framers said that human governments are instituted primarily in order to protect the God-given unalienable right to life, that's straight out of Genesis 9. I love that. It's the same thought as the pilgrims coming over to honor and worship God. Well, the founders said, we believe that Life on the earth is to be preserved by government. Government exists to preserve this unalienable right that each person on the earth has to live, that we should be able to live and someone else shouldn't be able to take our life. That's out of Genesis 9. So today, if you think of police forces, if you think of military forces, armies, navies, militias, All of these, the the bottom, the rationale, the authority of all these forms of government at at the very basic level is to protect and to preserve life. That's still true today. So that for someone to serve in the military or in the police or whatever, these are honorable professions because God instituted this most basic form of government to protect and to preserve life. That's why government was instituted, and it was instituted by God here in Genesis 9. Some things, man's sinfulness remained the same after the flood. Some other things remained the same after the flood. And one was this, God's purpose for man remained the same after the flood. In Genesis 9, verse 1, God said, Be fruitful 
and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 7 in chapter 9 says the same thing. This is language straight out of the creation account, Genesis 1, 28. God's original creation, He wanted man to fill the earth up with life. And after the flood, things are, some things are going to be different. God's going to slow the progress of sin. But He wants man to do the same thing after the flood that He did before the flood. He wants man to fill the earth, fill it abundantly, He says, with life. God's purpose after the flood was the same as before the flood. Man, Noah, Adam, fill the earth up with life. Now, some things were different. Uh, one, <clears throat> I'm not sure why, but it, it, uh, it strikes me as somewhat odd, but one of the things that's different after the flood is man's relationship to the world around him and specifically man's relationship to animals, to the creation, is different after the flood. Do you see what, what God said? Animals will fear man for good reason because men will eat the animals. Animals will fear man, and men will use animals in ways that apparently hadn't before. Remember in the garden, death, death was not an element in the garden. So men didn't eat animals in the garden. Before the fall, there was no death on the earth. We assume up to this point, perhaps, men were primarily vegetarians. Nothing said about men eating animals before this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Even able keeping flocks, they may have simply used the milk of the, the goats or the sheep or whatever. But here, God says, God institutes this alienation. The animals are going to be afraid of you, and I'm giving you the animals as food. This wasn't the case, at least generically so, this wasn't the case before the flood. This is different after the flood. There's now this animus or this alienation between man and the rest of creation. And animals, remember pre-flood or at least in the garden, Man still ruled the animals. Adam still was the ruler of the animals, but it wouldn't have been in a way that was destructive or harmful to the animals. But now there's this, man's still the ruler, but there's going to be this harmful component of man's rule over the animals. The animals will fear man, and man will use the animals as meat. Now, when I say this, a couple things. Um, I'm not a PETA fan, and I'm not advocating anything like PETA. The alienation is by God's doing. You and I can't change the alienation between mankind and the animals. You can't do it. It's God's doing. So we can be kind to our pets. You know, Proverbs talks about the righteous man is kind to his animals. I don't mean that we should be abusive in any way. We should still be godly rulers of the earth, and that includes animals. We can't take away, though, this aspect of alienation. That's done by God's doing, and we can't take that away. We can't make that better. There's also probably meant to be inferred in this, this element that's throughout the rest of the Old Testament, that man's life, man gets life or man preserves life by the life of someone or something else. So, you know, just thinking about uh, us eating animals, an animal is slain, we consume that animal and we live because the animal died and because we consumed it. That's the picture here. And of course, this, this goes into the, the offerings you'll see throughout the mosaic economy offered in Israel's history. So you have this picture of animals die 
and people live. We live because someone, something else dies. And of course, all of this in the end then points to the person of Jesus Christ who becomes the ultimate sacrifice for sin. He dies for us. He's the ultimate life giver, but he doesn't give life until he's lost his own life. And then you got that great analogy in John 6 in which he invites people to eat his flesh and drink his blood, right? And he's not talking about cannibalism. And he's not actually in context, he's not talking about what we call the Lord's Supper. But he said that those who would take him into themselves, and in John's gospel that means believe in Christ through faith, would get life. So I assume that we're inferring here in this concept of man gaining life through the death of the animals that we're seeing the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ's death providing life for us. And as we take Christ in through faith, we gain his life just as Noah and his descendants would gain life physically from the animals. So some things are different post-flood. I want to spend the short balance of our time in verses 5 through 7 in chapter 9. This is a big deal. Uh, God says, I will require your lifeblood. This may be a little enigmatic to you. What does that mean? It basically means God holds us accountable for the life of others. God holds us accountable for the lives, and that means the death, the murder, the destruction of other human beings. Three times in verse 5, God says, I will require your human's life blood. Um, Old Testament concept, our life is in our blood. God said, don't eat the animals while the blood is still in them. In a sense to God, God says it's sacred, it's holy, and you shouldn't eat it, the blood. That's their life. The life is in the blood, it'll say later in the law. But God says, I'm holding you accountable for the lives of the people around you, such that, God said, if an animal killed a human, the animal was to be slain. This is reiterated in the law later. Likewise, if one human murdered, took the life of another human, God said in chapter 9, he was to forfeit his own life. Government was about preserving life, and God said capital punishment was a form, this civil government takes on its initial form simply to protect life, and in protecting life, part of that means you would execute the murderer. Capital punishment here was God's idea. He said, I will require your lifeblood. Now think about this before the flood. Cain murders his brother Abel. And then we read about his descendant Lamech that we understand is to be kind of a representative of Cain's line. What's Lamech characterized by? The same murderous spirit. If a boy insults me, I will kill him. Or then later in Genesis 6:11, life on the earth before the flood was characterized by violence. Violence. So God's desire in creation, reiterated to know, was to fill the earth with life. But before the flood, and sometimes after the flood, God knows that we're going to operate totally against that by taking life. So he says, I require life. I hold you accountable for the lives of those around you. Now first, why did God put such a high priority on life? 
what's at stake, what's the deal. And in verse 6, God says this, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be said. Why? Because, for, in the image of God he made man. God institutes capital punishment because he says each individual, each individual life, each person bears the image of God himself. So that when I kill another person, I am killing God in his representative. That each of us are, as image bearers of God, we're his representatives on the earth. So that when one person kills another person, they are killing a God, an image of God bearer. And God says that act is so great, it's the, in a sense, it's the ultimate sin that requires the ultimate penalty, this taking the life of an image bearer of God. So think about this for just a second. The smallest unborn baby bears the image of God. And the oldest and feeblest among us bears the image of God. If you're human, you bear the image of God. The least physically attractive among us bears the image of God. The most dull mentally among us bears the image of God. The most physically deformed bears the image of God. And even the most morally evil human still bears the image of God. So to greater or lesser degree, each person on the planet is God's representative because we each individually bear His image. So when we take away the life of another person, it is in a sense the ultimate insult to God. It's a slap in God's face because we are removing one of His image bearers, one of His representatives. Related to this theme of I will hold you accountable for life, think of the way we value or don't value life today. I was thinking about this in the United States, but the truth is this is true worldwide. Um, There's plenty of blame to go around. We can think of this in the United States today, but this is in no way restricted to the United States, the things we're talking about here. It's true all over the world. Think of this. In the U.S. and in most of the world today, it's perfectly legal to kill unborn children. Unborn children have no rights. We say they're not human, and so since they're not human, they have no legal rights before our courts, before our government that's set up to preserve life. So worldwide, and again, if you read statistics on this, uh, I can't remember the number of abortions in the United States every year. It's millions, but... You'll see the same thing in the Soviet Union. You'll see the same thing throughout Europe. You'll see the same thing all over the world. So imagine this. All over the world, every year, we are taking the life of countless millions of unborn human beings, image bearers. This is what God said He would hold us accountable for. We're killing multiplied millions of children every year all across the world. The God who said he wants life on the earth, we're taking away that life every year, untold millions, through abortion. So instead of multiplying life as God called us to, we're taking it away. And also think of this, especially in a place, the West, I'm thinking primarily, this could be Europe, it could be the U.S. Eastern Europe, of course, is gaining the same kind of wealth. But in the parts of the world where we have wealth, 
instead of welcoming God's image bearers into the world, we often resent them because we want more stuff, you know, because they're a nuisance. Because if I have kids, it means I got to spend money and I'd rather go out to eat or, you know, be in a bigger house, buy a newer car, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we've become a culture of death instead of a culture of life because we're taking life all the time in abortion. We're not valuing life in the children God gives us. This is true all over the world. But also consider this, consider capital punishment. And by the way, um, these are uh, serious issues and uh, heavy, and they're, they're, poli- they're political issues today too, and there's much that we won't talk about this. I want to stay primarily focused on these texts and the implications directly of the texts themselves, but there's obviously a lot that we could talk about or say and nuance one thing and another, especially on application. But consider also this culture of death related to capital punishment. You guys know if you read anything about this, generally people opposed to capital punishment say you can't value life and take a life. God says exactly the opposite. You can't value life if you don't take the life of the life taker. Capital punishment is God's idea here. Noah didn't come up with this. God said, this is my requirement. Noah didn't bring this up. A vengeful guy didn't get off the ark and say, I'm going to give it to anybody who takes someone else's life. God said, I'm requiring life. God instituted capital punishment. It puts the ultimate penalty on the ultimate crime. Now, in the U.S., we have forms of capital punishment, uh, state by state. But you know, in our culture... And when I say we here, I just mean collectively the culture. I don't mean necessarily that you or I or others in our midst do this. But we file lawsuits, we picket, we protest, we establish laws to forbid the God-ordained authorities from carrying out God's command of requiring the life taker to forfeit his own life. We give, (coughs) sorry, (coughs) we give murderers the right to life. We deny the unborn. We have taken, we are a culture of death. God God is after life. And so God says, I want you to fill the earth with life. And if someone violates another's life by taking it, they forfeit their own life. God said this not because he's against life, because he's for life. And capital punishment validates God God's life, and it validates the life of the person who was murdered. The argument that you can't be for life and for capital punishment is wrong-headed. We miss the mark on both of these. To kill the unborn children is to sin against God by denying their humanity. And to refuse to execute the murderer is to sin against God by denying the value of the life of the person that they killed. God is for Life. Capital punishment was actually meant to be for life. The institution of the first civil government was to promote life, but it was in part done so by the threat of execution for murder. You'll see this theme develop through the rest of the Bible. And so if you go into the law, you'll see it becomes more nuanced. So God makes provision for manslaughter, for instance, in the law. And there's uh, the ability to pay back if someone's life was taken accidentally. You get cities of refuge so that if you killed someone, maybe it was an accident, you could flee to a city of refuge 
so that you could be guaranteed a fair trial so that person's relative couldn't simply come and kill you when maybe it was manslaughter, it was accident, it wasn't murder. So you see this theme developed over time. There's, there's more to it over time. But the theme remained the same. And by the way, when you get to the New Testament, this doesn't end. So that if you read Paul in Romans 13, 4, Paul says today, in the age of grace, post-resurrection, the government bears the sword to be God's avenger for wrath on those who do evil. Remember, the sword is the instrument of execution. He's not talking about the whole context of Romans 13. It's not about war. It's about civil government within a given country. Paul said the government exists by God's will as God's servant with a sword, the power of life and death, to execute wrath on those who do evil. And in Genesis 9, the evil that God specifically mentioned was murder. It was taking another person's life intentionally. Having said this, this much is clear. Contemporarily, though, in, in the place we live and in the time we live, this is, it becomes less simple, of course, because you look at statistics and you say, well, justice is applied unequally based on race in the U.S. and elsewhere. We say sentencing guidelines are unfair or unjust at times, patently so. Uh, I'm not arguing against any of that, that the way this is carried out should be just and fair and equitable across the board, etc. But none of that puts Genesis 9 aside or, or Romans 13, 4 aside. None of that says that those who intentionally take the life of the other should not forfeit their own, but it should be done justly, should be done appropriately and fairly. That remains the same. Um, if you've had an abortion, you know, in a, in a group of any size, you guys know abortion in the United States is so widespread that if you get in a group of... Uh, any size at all, about a third, I think the number is, women in the United States have at some time had an abortion. So you assume if you talk about this in a group of any size, you're talking to women related to abortion who've had abortions. Or you'll know people that have had abortions. In either case, um, let me say this, a couple things. One, if a woman's had an abortion, she knows this. I'm better than I do. Uh, The fallout of abortion to, to most women is a severe sense of guilt and a severe sense of remorse or loss. It's a serious sin, and there's serious consequences, and I don't mean to belittle that at all. Serious sin, serious consequences. But having said that, when Jesus Christ died on the cross for sins, he died for this sin as well. And so if you're a person who's had an abortion, or you know people that have, or you're interacting with them, they can have the same forgiveness that anybody else has for any other sin. You can be forgiven of this sin just like you can be forgiven of any other sin. And when a woman confesses, if they've had this sin, or if you're a man who's contributed or compelled this sin, if I go to God, 1 John, and I confess my sin based on the blood of Christ, the life that was taken instead of mine, the blood that was shed, to cover my blood guiltiness, God forgives my sin and declares me righteous again. So that if, if you've committed this sin or you know someone who has, there's forgiveness in Christ, just as there is for every other sin. I'm also comforted by this. This is true both of abortion, it's true of miscarriage, 
It's true of children who die in their youth. You know, in the story of David and Bathsheba, adultery led to conception. And Bathsheba had a little boy, a little child. And God told David, he's not going to live. I'm judging you by taking the life of that little child. And when the child dies, David says, he won't return to me, but I'll go to him. And there seems to be this thought in David that I will meet that little son in God's presence in the future. And I believe that whether it's the abortion, it's the miscarriage, it's the child that dies in their youth, there's other texts along this line. It's kind of a gray area on one hand, but there's other New Testament texts that address this the same thing. That you will see those children in heaven in Christ's presence. And that in the place where God wipes away all tears, these tears of that loss will also be wiped away there. So on one hand, there's forgiveness of sin here. And I believe there's also restoration in Christ's presence in heaven with these children that we lose through abortion, miscarriage, or early death. I'm comforted by that. It's less likely that there's a murderer in our midst, though I don't know. Or maybe you'll know someone who takes another life intentionally or otherwise. I know a man who's, who's taken life unintentionally. Manslaughter, and maybe you do too. Uh, the same thing applies for murder this ultimate sin, as it were, because it sins against God and God's image in man. Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sin of murder, just as he did for every other sin as well. So that if I've taken someone else's life intentionally or unintentionally, or if I talk to someone that has, I can offer them the same hope that I can offer anyone else on the earth. The blood of Christ covers my blood guiltiness. The animals on the altar, Jesus Christ on the cross, that's what satisfies God's requirement for my sin. The sin of murder, the sin of abortion, the sin of lust, envy, on and on. We all find the same point of forgiveness through the same act or offering on our behalf. The blood of Christ answers or it satisfies God's requirement for that life. This is a good place to land. You know, whatever our sins are in the past, Jesus Christ's death on the cross, His blood, His life covered those sins so that God can say to us, you're righteous, you're in good standing with me. That old world Noah left, it was characterized by sin and death. And on one hand, the men that come out of the ark, the men and women that come out of the ark, they're kind of, they're cut of the same cloth as those people who were who were destroyed in the flood. Some things in this life are the same and some things are a little different. But God, their post-flood, as Noah and his family come out of the ark, God institutes these mechanisms by which he's going to slow the progress of sin. And one of those is civil government. And governments exist so that life can be preserved on the earth. Just like those pilgrims, left an old world behind, sailed across the troubled seas to land in a new world, and as they set up shop, as it were, they come to this compact, this agreement with each other that in order to glorify God and spread the gospel and preserve life, we're agreeing to these very basic fundamentals. We're committed to our king and to each other. You know, that's a good place for us to land too. We're committed to worshiping God. 
We're committed to the furtherance of the gospel. And we're committed as a body to God and to each other in that process. It's a good place to land. Let's pray. Lord, so often we confuse our thoughts with yours. Some things you make very, very clear to us in your word. Other things are a bit ambiguous, some are not. Lord, you want life on the earth. You're the God of all life. Life is your business. It's what you're about. Lord, help us to be both image bearers and life bearers. Help us to have that mentality of Noah or the pilgrims landing in a new world, bringing this truth that the God of life rules in the world today, that you have requirements, and that when we fail them, Lord, you yourself have provided the sacrifice that answers to our sin and to our guilt. Lord, we have the ultimate refuge in the person of the Lord Jesus. Help us to live lives with clean consciences, Lord, right standing before you, knowing that in Christ we're forgiven. And help us to be ready and uh, willing to share that message with others, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.